Hi, welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. Today, it's not only our 20th episode, but uh, it's coming up to our first birthday. But more exciting than that is uh, our guest today, who is author, journalist and activist, Mona El-Tahawi. She's the founder of the feminist giant newsletter and author of two previous books, uh, Headscarves and Hymens, and The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, which was published in 2020. Welcome, Mona. Hello, Emma. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, we're, we're mainly here to have a chat about your uh, upcoming book, title of which I have written down because it has a, has a sort of a subtitle that's quite long, entitled Bloody Hell and Other Stories, Adventures in Menopause from Across the Personal and Political Spectrum. And you'll be publishing that via Unbound, the crowdfunding model. So we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I do want to hear about it, but I thought we could briefly touch on uh, your last book I've got my copy in front of me which you can see it's got post-it notes uh, <laughs> sticking out the top because I've just been reviewing it and chopping out some quotes the seven necessary sins for women and girls which which I just really loved and, and I think is probably overdue for a reread <laughs> I read it last year can you tell us a bit more about the the seven I keep wanting to call it the seven deadly sins and of course you know for some of the people you write about in the book they, those are women or trans or non-binary individuals who who have been put in danger by some of these very sins that, that you're talking about, whether that's, you know, through the attention or or sort of violence or whatever. Yeah, tell us a bit more about, about the sins that you talk about in the book. Sure, I'd be glad to. Well, you know, I, I begin everything, Emma, and this is kind of like the kind of the core of my book with by saying, you know, hello everyone, this is Mona Altahawi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and this is my declaration of faith fuck the patriarchy. So you can tell from the get-go that I'm a very profane person. I love to swear. And profanity is obviously one of the sins. And it's funny that you should say that you're tempted, you know, you kind of like want to slip into the deadly sins because obviously I'm riffing off, you know, the deadly sins. But I've I've repurposed them and made them necessary sins because for me, the, the seven sins that I write about are necessary in our fight to dismantle the patriarchy. Because for me, feminism, the definition of feminism is the destruction of patriarchy, which is a much bigger definition than, say, equality between men and women. Um, mm. I prefer liberation. I prefer freedom. And I believe that we will all be free, you know, not just women or non-binary or trans people, but we will all be free when we destroy the patriarchy. And so I wrote this manifesto of what I call the seven necessary sins that I believe we have to want to do or to be in order to destroy that patriarchy. So anger, attention, profanity, ambition, power, violence, and lust. And for each one of those, you know, I give very personal stories, but I also give stories from around the world so that people can see that feminism is very much a global thing, that feminism is very much alive and vital and necessary. And just as importantly, because I wrote the book, you know, while Donald Trump was in power, um, I wanted people to see that Donald Trump uh, was a result of a failure of what, you know, many people now call white feminism and that the United States and white feminism are not the center of the universe. And that's why I wanted to give examples of feminist resistance from around the world and also include, and this is so important, gender expansive people, because we cannot leave our non-binary trans and gender expansive comrades behind. I think as the mum of a a young girl, I think one of the things, many of the things in your book resonated, but I think what really kind of 
made me think was the the chapter where you were talking about anger and how you know what if we nurtured that anger in, in girls in the same way as we encourage reading or other skills and you know actually help them to use that to navigate the world around them to understand the world and express herself rather than sort of squishing it out of them and training them to be kind of good and compliant and I do think that you know this is a book that could be a really valuable tool for not just girls but young Mm. men as well so I, I guess one of my questions to you would be how old do you think a teen or a preteen or would would need to be to read this book because I you know I do I talk to my son and my daughter about you know the patriarchy they probably roll their eyes at me every now and then but (laughs) I would love them to both read this book so yeah I'm interested have you spoken to to other young people who who've read this and that sort of what age did they really start to get the ideas that you're talking about there yeah you know that's that's one of the most popular questions that I get you know on social media or at my events where parents will ask me, you know, do you think my child is ready to read your book? And, you know, it's such a personal question. Mm. You know, I'm child-free by choice. And I often talk about being child-free by choice. And and I would never tell a parent how to raise their child because, you know, I, I don't have that particular parenting experience. But what I do have experience in is being a little girl myself <laughs> and knowing, you know, what what I needed as I was growing up to navigate the world in the way that I'm now talking to parents about, you know, nurturing what I call that pilot light of rage, because I believe that we're all born with that pilot light of rage. And, you know, I don't think that we need to teach girls to be angry. Uh, what we need to do is, is, is to stop teaching them not to be angry. It's like the opposite. You know, everyone is born with this pilot light of rage. It's mm. one of the things that protect us because it, it helps us to rage against injustice. So when parents ask me, you know, is my child old enough to read to read your book? I tell them, first of all, you know, it's up to you, you know, because how comfortable a, a parent are you with swearing? How comfortable a parent are you with, you know, discussions of sex and sexuality? And I would hope that they would be very comfortable. But and also how comfortable are you with, you know, my, my chapter, which I know for many people is the most controversial on violence, you know, so that mm. I leave all of those decisions to the parents. But I hope that they would be comfortable. And, and, you know, because one of the things I talk about in the chapter on, on anger is that I'm working on a curriculum of, of, about rage for girls in that and I will put together, you know, a collection of feminists and poets and activists and everything they've written and, and spoken about and celebrated about rage as a way to kind of like to give this toolkit, you know, especially to, to young girls before the patriarchy gets them and squishes out that anger. So often what I, when I get the question on social media, I will retweet it if it comes in a tweet. And then I love to see other parents come in and speak to the parent who asked me this question. So I've had parents say, you know, my child is as young as 10 or my child is as young as 12. Or I've read this book and I've, I've, it's helped me to open discussions, you know, with my daughter or son or, you know, non-binary child, and it's been really, really useful. So I think one of the things that I'm I'm considering as, you know, the book, so in the US and, and um, Canada, it came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. In Ireland and the UK, it came out in 2020. So I'm seriously considering having a young adult, a YA version, where oh, I will, that would be you know, amazing. Make, 
right? So I so and, like, and some notes to go with. Is, here's your further reading. You know, once yeah. you've read this chapter, here's here's where you go next. Exactly. So it would have a curriculum for age and everything. It would also have you know a, a, like a, a reading guide, an educational guide, and it would make it more accessible to younger people. You know, especially uh, like I was saying, boys, girls, non-binary children mm. who uh, you know who are part of the feminist struggle against patriarchy because it's going to impact them directly as they grow up that sounds incredible we've already mentioned the um the feminist giant newsletter which when i write up the 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 notes on the the website i'll make sure that we link out so that people can find find you in all your many guises but yeah let, let's let's move on then and talk about the new book so mm. actually no let's get back a bit when did you realize that you were going through perimenopause? Because I think for many people, it's sort of, we're so kind of lost. It, it's a mm. kind of a creeping realisation or it's it's a kind of something that gets to a crisis point where that they, they finally get to see a sort of a medical practitioner who figures out what's going on. What was your story? You know, it, it's kind of, I mean, I'm half embarrassed, but I also am quite open about this because I, I start by saying, you know, I'm a feminist and I should have known better. <laughs> but then how was I supposed to know better? So my story is like when I was in my, I would say early to mid forties, I think I first began the first signs, which I had no idea were very menopause. Were, it's a recurring story. <laughs> right? This is like almost every story, right? And, and it's like everyone has their own entry point. Mine were two. One was um, in the run-up to my period, I would get these night sweats where I would be drenched. And I'd be like, ah, my period is coming, you know. But why I didn't stop to think, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know, I've had my period since I was 11 and a half. And I never would this wake up new. in the middle of the night <laughs> drenched, right? So I just thought, oh, it's just it's just what I have, I can't even remember what I thought. I was just like, oh, okay, my period is coming. You rationalize it away. Of course, right? They're like, okay, it's just my period is coming. And then it was, um, it had to, uh, sex. So I would be having sex and I would, I was especially uh, uh, not lubricated. This, again, this is in my early to mid forties. And it never occurred to me that this was a sign of perimenopause. So and I, this, I remember precisely, I would go and Google um, because I'd say I'd had a cold or something and I'd taken cold medication. Can cold medication cause <laughs> vaginal dryness? So I'd be like, ah, that's what it was. Never occurred to me that it was perimenopause. And like now I'm like, for fuck's sake, Mona, how did you know put this together? And then, so I think also what, what kind of helped delay it a bit is that in my late, late 40s probably, or like maybe 46, 47, I went on the Morena IUD, which has a bit oh, okay. of progesterone yeah. on it, in it. So it, it had nasty. a bit of a... Yeah. yeah, it had a bit of a hormonal kick to it, so it probably delayed some other things as well. But then I got fed up of it because it was a whole bunch of stuff I didn't like, or side effects of that particular IUD. So I took it out, and when I took it out, it was like everything came crashing in. Um, the anxiety, the depression, the, the, the kind of like complete... I didn't have sex for a year, which for me is, is like, oh my God, terrifying. Sex is really important for me. So when I, when I had no sex drive for a year, I was like fucking hell what the actual fuck is happening so that's when I really began to pay attention and I was speaking to a friend of mine who wrote a fantastic book um, about menopause called what fresh hell is this 
and they they're a, a non-binary person called Heather Corinna yeah. and they I, are I interviewed them on the podcast last year and I absolutely love know, them. Heather. It's a fantastic so, book. I tell everyone it's a fantastic book. I'm so glad because I um, they interviewed me for the book. I blurb the book. I love to talk about the book because um, they came to my event, one of my promotional events for the seven necessary sins for women and girls, because we knew each other online because mm-hmm. we had been mutuals on, on social media. And they came and then we went out for dinner afterwards. And um, they told me, you know, I'm writing this notes. book about menopause. Can I interview you? And I was like, you know, this fucking menopause thing, how long does it last? Because so all along I thought I'm going to get to this one day where my period stops and that's menopause. And then Heather, of course, Heather, of course, told me it takes 10 to 14 years. And I was like, that was the screech moment, you know, like, like fucking kidding me. And that was in 2019. So that's that's Mona, the feminist who knew zilch about menopause. Familiar, right? Yep. But hopefully changing and and improving. Let's talk then um, about why you decided to put this anthology together. So on the on the website, which as I said, I'll share, talks about expanding the conversation beyond white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied women perspectives. And I think, you know, as with many things in the kind of the wellness space, and I, you know, this is ironic, me talking because I'm a middle-aged white woman, you know, it that has been kind of really very much co-opted or the voices that we hear are predominantly white women yeah is that the specific focus for you of doing this this book or was there anything else that sort of it's many many focuses that definitely absolutely um is is central to it but I I kind of like I'll give you the origin story so to speak because so once I realized what was happening and and you know I, I started following all of the different um, you know, menopause and perimenopause accounts, many of which I'm sure you're familiar with. So Heather I- introduced me to Black Girl's Guide to Menopause and, you know, Omi, and I was on mm. Omi's um, podcast and Hot Flash Inc. It's like this whole kind of network began to appear. It's like a secret loved- door in the wall and you go through and they're like, all oh, the cool people are here. <laughs> it was wonderful because <laughs> I learned so much. It was like a crash course in peri. And menopause, you know, it was like it was like it saved my mind. So I began to put everything together, and so I learned about supplements and suppositories. So like, so I learned about so because, as I said, you know, for me, one of the things that was really important to me uh, was sex and my sex mm. drive and my libido. And so I began to research that specifically, and I came across, you know, this idea of moisturize your vagina. I was like, what? Nobody told me this. <laughs> you know, yeah, we're vagina. all there spending hundreds of dollars and pounds slapping stuff on <laughs> our faces. We're like, yes. but it's like also moisturize your vagina. I was like, oh my god, yes. So <laughs> I began to look into, you know, the supplements and the suppositories and all of that. And I wrote this essay called Moisturize Your Vagina, in which, you know, I said, of course, um, the, the menopause, the transition uh, known as menopause is, you know, affects anyone who's ever had a period. And so it's much bigger than just, again, you know, cis, cis women. And I'm, I'm a cisgender woman. I'm queer, but I'm, I'm cis and I'm able bodied. So, you know, a lot of those boxes of privileges, we call them, you know, mm. I tick. But I'm a woman of color and I'm queer. And I also realize that because a lot of the stuff that I write about straddles all of those worlds because one of my, the, the impetus of so much of my feminism is to expand it beyond 
whiteness and, and beyond the, the so-called West. So I wrote this essay, Moisturize Your Vagina. I told a very personal story about my own background with sex and, and so-called chastity and all this fucking bullshit virginity shit that, you know, I fucked out of my system as I tell everyone. But I, I, I use that essay as, a, as by way of describing why now, as I'm going through this transition and all the changes that are happening in my sex drive, it's really important for me to focus on sex. But then I recognize that other people focus on other things, you know. But I said, here are the things that have helped me. And I realize, of course, that many of them, you know, cost money that that is probably beyond a lot of people because, you know, I can afford these suppositories mm. and ways to, to moisturize my vagina. But what about people who can't, you know? So anyway, so I wrote all of this essay under the big banner of kind of like, you know, I'm shameless. And one of the great things I love about um, perimenopause is that it's made me even more shameless because instead of a period where the lining of my uterus is shed, I am shedding the patriarchal fuckery <laughs> that I've been socialized in. <laughs> so that was a, a very popular essay on Feminist Giant. And then Unbound wrote to me and said, Mona, we want you to, would you be interested in editing an anthology? like yes oh, so that's fantastic. how it happened. oh so they approached you not the other way around mm-hmm. love it so I was saying um earlier I, I do my day job when I'm not doing this um I work in the publishing industry so I find the whole kind of crowdfunding a book model which you know is becoming more and more popular really really fascinating mm-hmm. so I mean essentially yeah it works in exactly the same way as crowdfunding something else so uh people can go and pledge on the unbound website order a pre-order so it's essentially the same as pre-ordering you know yeah. any other method but but yeah without all of the sort of the three ring circus that goes along with you know having to find an agent and then a publisher and getting a book deal etc etc so yeah I think it's it's a really exciting model and uh yeah I hope some of the the people listening uh, will follow the link from the website and and pre-order your book what are the some of the other I don't know what you call them, not enticements. That sounds a bit too... Um... Like goodies, the goodies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that people can sign up for. Yeah, well, you know, like you said, Emma, it's like pre-ordering. So like there are many levels of pledging. Um, the most basic level is, you know, basically the price of the book. And or like as if you're you're pre-ordering a book, you know, so you pay whatever yeah. the book would cost you in a bookshop. And, and, and then you get you get your name in the back of the book, you know, as a thank you for helping to uh, crowdfund the book. And then there are other levels, you know, the more you pledge, the more you get. So everyone who pledges will get a book and their name at the back of the book. But then if you pledge a bit more than the actual cost of the book, you could get a mug or depending on how much you pledge, or you can get a work of art because each essay is going to be illustrated by a wonderful artist called Shea M. Gaith, who um, designed the logo of Feminist Giant, who's a fantastic artist in, in her own right. And so she's going to be illustrating um, the cover of the book and each chapter or each essay rather, because not really chapters, they're essays. Mm. Uh, so you get a work of art by Sham. You can get a tote. Uh, you get a, um, um, a dedicated video of me yelling, fuck the that's, Patreon. That's just my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> or you could get, you know, if you have like a group of friends um, that you want to treat, you could get, you can order five books together. And then for a bit more than that, you could get half an hour with me where I would talk to you and your friends. So it's like you get some time with me in a, in a, a mini book club where you all get copies of the book and then you get half an hour of my time, you know, talking to you. And then for people who have funds and they really, really want to splurge on us, thank you. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can become like a super patron where you get your name on the front of the book if you pay a lot of money, if you have, you know, disposable income. We thank you very much. <laughs> Fantastic. So we, we've already talked a little bit about Heather, who wrote 
uh, a fantastic book came was very kind enough to come and talk to the podcast last year and mm-hmm. I think they are writing one of the essays in the book yes. is that right yes. yes I'm so glad so Heather's writing one of the books so Heather is one of the non-binary contributors another non-binary con- contributor is someone you might know called Tanya Glide mm-hmm. who is um, queer menopause on social media and Tanya was one of um several people who um, testified or went and spoke before parliament in the UK, where I know that, you know, kind of like the, the campaign and, and, and the push to get menopause, you know, out there on the agenda is much, much further ahead than, than in the US. So Tanya has kindly also agreed they're contributing an essay. Um, there's a trans man who is contributing an essay. And I begin with the gender expansive people because, you know, like we both said, it, it's, it, that is one of the goals of the book to expand, uh, you know, the understanding and the focus of menopausal people. I also have cisgender people. So Anne Marie, who is the founder of Hot, Hot Flash Inc. newsletter, who you know every week does this great curation of all the news out there about um, menopause. Anne Marie is contributing an essay. Uh, there is a nutritionist called Jen Salib who is um, on social media called uh, Menopause Nutritionist. And she, Jen is contributing an essay about nutrition and, and, you know, the ways we eat and what she calls intuitive eating that mm-hmm. goes, you know, headlong against this, this, uh, you know, most, if you, if you Google menopause, so many articles come out about dieting and losing weight yeah. because, you know, this the belly fat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So Jen works against that. So Jen is contributing an essay about her work as a nutritionist. Um, and then also another big focus of the book is to expand, you know, as I said, expand the, the, the focus beyond the so-called West and whiteness. So I have contributors from South Africa, black feminists from South Africa. I have contributors who are of um, Chinese and Asian descent. I have contributors from India. I have co- um, one contributor who wrote a fabulous book called How to Raise a Feminist Son. And she's a professor in the US and she's writing about her own kind of journey of discovery about menopause. So I've got women of color, I've got black women, I've got trans, a trans man, non-binary people, because I really, really want this anthology to, oh, I've got uh, another uh, contributor who actually edited an anthology for Unbound when Ireland was going through the repeal the Eighth Amendment. And um, her name is Una Malali. Una's a fantastic activist and feminist, uh, queer queer rights activist too. And she's contributing an essay about how her treatment for cancer created an early onset menopause. Because, you know, that, that mm. also is another um, entry point into menopause we don't often get, you know. And a, and a very and, brutal one, which people are even less prepared for potentially yes. and just kind of left to get on with this. Absolutely. If, if, you know, I knew so little and I'm like, oh my God, and I'm a feminist, people who go through chemotherapy know, you know, are given even less. So um, Una is contributing an essay about her experience with early onset menopause or menopause um, triggered by her cancer treatment. So it's a wonderful array of people from across the world, from across the gender spectrum. And I'm really excited. So I hope, you know, buy all the books you can get. Pledge, please. (laughs) Pledge, pledge, pledge. I think just going back to Heather's book, I think one of the things that I really took away from that was there was a part of the book that was talking about the impact of trauma on the Mm. severity of symptoms, but also, you know, thinking about how the experiences of people with disabilities impacted Mm. on menopause as well. And I think, you know, those are two things where, you know, we really don't hear Mm. much about Mm -hmm. 
those sort of the, those kind of intersecting areas of, of experience and, and how that can impact on people going through this. Yes. So I'm sure some of that will, will come up in the book as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you know that Heather is is disabled as, uh, and and also you know a non-binary person. So I know that disability you know it often features in their work, and um, it's really important to me. You know, especially now that we're going through this this fucking pandemic. You know, where um, many disabled people are, have been telling us all along. You know, you have to you know pay attention to so many people who are just left not just to fall through the cracks, but, you know, the, the neglect of, of whom is, you know, borders on, you know, it, it's genocidal, you, eugenics, you know, as, as many people have been, um, you know, urging us to use these words, because when you look at who's been impacted the most during the pandemic, you know, disabled people, black, mm-hmm. indigenous and brown people, poor and working class people. So, so you know, it, it, again, you know, I, I want the anthology to be, uh, to, in, to be as inclusive as possible, and to have menopause stories that you know we don't hear that we must hear and that you know push push us beyond the various privileges that that we that we live with because I acknowledge I I live with a lot of privilege you know I'm I'm not a white cisgender heterosexual uh, woman but I have many other privileges that that you know I, I believe when you when you have privilege you're obliged to fight 10 times harder to expand the space and share it with others you know it's one of the things I try to do with Feminist Giant and it's definitely one of the goals of Bloody Hell and other stories. Yeah and definitely you were talking sort of earlier about you know having the capacity to sort of you know to pay for you know whether that's supplements or mm-hmm. being able to see a sort of a professional to be able to help yeah. you or mm-hmm. you know we're even seeing things in the UK like you no know, wait times to see a professional a menopause mm-hmm. a menopause specialist are so long that people are being forced to go and pay you know out of their own pocket and that again is is only accessible to to some of us absolutely and we don't even have universal health care in the u.s you know so i mean like that it's it's built in this the, the unfairness the injustice is built into the system how do you go and talk to your doctor if you don't have um health insurance and you know you're left mm. to suffer you know with with all the impacts that that menopause the the, the menopause transition bring you know so there are like multiple levels of just unfairness and and injustice that go into so much that has to do with our health, with our body, with aging, uh, that the pandemic has definitely brought up, but that menopause brings up for those of us who go through that transition, most certainly. And you were talking earlier, I think, about the fact that, you know, menopause was going mainstream a lot more in perhaps in the UK than than the US. And yeah, even sort of daytime TV now, it's, (laughs) it it, really is being, being talked about everywhere. Are there, are there any kind of particular voices in the US who are starting to sort of change that? Well, um, you know, I was really glad to see Gabriel Union talk about it. You know, the actress Gabriel Union, she's talked about mm-hmm. um, going through um, menopause or her perimenopause. So that that's a name that I'm, I'm actually going to try and, and, you know, find someone who knows her and ask Gabriel to just <laughs> maybe contribute like yeah. even just 500 words. The forwards. <laughs> Yeah, right. Just get get someone super famous <laughs> so that you know people can go. Oh, okay. I'm gonna buy your book. <laughs> um. So Gabriel Union comes to mind, but you know, like on on the level of having, say, a documentary like uh, Davina mm. McCall made in in the UK, we're not there. We're not there yet in the US. I, I find the US. You know, I moved to the US in 2000, and the US is 
has an unhealthy obsession with youth. And, and, and it's so dangerous. So, and like you're so exhibiting weakness by, by admitting that you're getting through this naturally. Yeah, by getting older, basically. You know, and that's one of the things that, that I think has gone to, uh, has made the pandemic so much worse. Because, you know, when it became obvious very early on that it was impacting um, elder, senior citizens and elderly people first, you know, this incredibly selfish, individualistic, youth obsessed approach in the in the US was ah you know it's just all people dying you know and it was just horrendous i mean that's why you know words like eugenics and genocide and all of that had to be used because it that that unhealthy obsession with youth and ignoring aging as some kind of weakness like you're saying goes to the heart of so much that is wrong in the US so i'm hoping now that you know we have actresses who are talking about this um, that it, it it pushes the conversation more mainstream in the ways that you have in in the UK. Mm. Actually, that leads me on to one of the other points I was going to maybe talk about, uh, about the sort of ageism inherent in our society, which is thinking about, obviously, a lot of our societies going back hundreds, thousands of years were, were matriarchal societies. Mm. So, mm. you know, women coming into this phase of life were you know respected revered mm. valued for, for their wisdom and their knowledge mm. <laughs> like can we can we not go back to to that you know yeah. that whole experience of the sort of that bubble of patriarchy and misogyny of you know mm. making us ashamed of getting older and mm. feeling invisible and unwanted well you know it it I'm convinced, and, and I know that many people who are going through the, the menopause transition, you know, uh, know this and, and say this. So it's not just me who's saying it, but I'm convinced that the older we get, the more shamed we are for getting older because we're becoming more powerful. And so patriarchy wants to push us out because we finally have that power now in all the stages of our lives. So when I was younger, you know, I was miserable. I, not for all the money in the world would I go back to my 20s or even most of my 30s because I felt I had no power. And then, you know, so for some people who can be pregnant, who can become pregnant and who want to, to, to be a parent, power then comes through parenting. And I've never wanted to have children. I'm child-free by choice. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even get the power, you know, that comes from parenting. So I'm like, okay, finally, I, I'm like, I'm now in my power. I now know and I feel it that I have more power than I've ever had. You know, I can look, you know, I beat men up in the club and not just physical power, but you know, like well, there's, there's a, there is a whole chapter on power, isn't there? In, in the exactly. seven necessary sins, it is like, yeah. And, and yeah, the men are maybe a bit scared of us now that we're. Course, uh... yeah. <laughs> and, and that's exactly why they want to shame us for getting to this age now where we're like, you know what? Fuck you. I don't care. I've earned every single one of these wrinkles on my face. I fucking earned them. And, and, I'm now at the stage where I will not, this is why I, I, I mentioned shame and shamelessness. I have no shame because I'm, I'm powerful now and because yeah, I stand it's in liberating. my power. It's wonderful. And I, I'm convinced that's exactly why we're like pushed to the side by patriarchy because patriarchy doesn't want us to be powerful. Patriarchy mm. wants the powerless so that it can shape them and shame them and make them what, it wants them to be and this especially applies you know to cisgender women um, because you know trans and non-binary people have uh, you know other challenges from patriarchy but when I'm talking about me as a cisgender woman when I was in my 20s ah oh, I, I was miserable but here I am now 54 you know and I and I write my age and I post pictures hashtag this is 54 
because I am shameless. And as I write in Feminist Giant, when you're shameless, you can never be shamed. And this is what patriarchy fears, you know. And and this idea of being invisible is also something that, you know, I've talked to Anne-Marie about on her podcast. And I'm I'm writing an essay now because, do you know that Polish model, Polina Portikova? Uh, She's been talking a lot about being invisible and she's fucking pissed me off. I can't fucking believe it, honestly. I mean, this is like, I'm at the end of, of my patience with her. She had, There was an interview she gave to the Times of London, right? Where she's in a fucking string bikini and she's like, I'm invisible. I'm like, invisible to who? What the fuck are you talking about, woman? Invisible? Are you kidding me? She was. She used to be the highest paid model in the world. She was married to a famous rock star and then a famous you know, um, screenwriter and and TV producer. So clearly who she's invisible to are these powerful, rich, white men who used to, who she used to get deflected power from, you know, and who she used to get wealth, Mm. deflected wealth from. Not getting attention from the right people. (laughs) Exactly. So, so we really need to, 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 to like wrestle with this. I'm invisible. No, you're not invisible. You are not being seen by the rich, powerful men who want us to remain girls, powerless girls forever, and who are now scared of us as powerful women. But the nerve of saying I'm invisible when, you know, disabled women are invisible or invisibilized, you know, intentionally, you know, black and women of color are intentionally pushed out of the public eye. But you get this woman in a string bikini in the Times of London saying I'm invisible. Oh, my God. (laughs) The audacity. (laughs) Mona it's been such a joy talking to you please everyone listening go check out the link and and have a look at the Unbound website for Mona's upcoming book which I very much hope will be out this year so that I get to read it and (laughs) thank you so much for your time it's been lovely it's been a pleasure thank you so much Emma you've been listening to the middling along podcast do remember to subscribe to be notified when the next episode is live and why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well i do hope you enjoyed listening today if you did i'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed hope you can join us next time goodbye for now